Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Ways of making you talk with me, Al Murray, and of course with James Holland. And we're talking to a very special guest today, uh, um, who's who's uh, has published an extraordinary book. Um, which at the uh, uh, and we before we came on air, we were just talking about something in the last third of the book that we, I'm sure we'll get to, which is the most amazing thing to see in print, um, and the, the effect it must be having on people um, is something we'll get we'll get to in a bit. But who are we talking to, James? Well, today we've got Simon Parkin, and I love what Simon's doing because he's taking sort of forgotten episodes, forgotten parts of of, of a more familiar war, and bringing them to the forefront with amazing characters, amazing research, and, and books that just absolutely rattle along. So, from my point of view, this is kind of popular narrative history at its best. So um, a, a little while ago, he did a game of Birds and Wolves, a secret game that revolutionised the war. Um, the, uh, and more recently has done um, The Island of Extraordinary Captives. Uh, and that's what we're talking about today. And um, it, it's a heck of a story. So Simon, thank you very much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Um, uh, so Simon, I mean, in, 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 in Precy, uh, Island of Extraordinary Captives is about... The, the what the British government thinks is the solution to a problem it thinks it, it has, which is expatriate German people in in the UK when the, when the war begins, and where where this measure ends up is is the is the story that, that you tell. And it's uh, I mean, first of all, how many how many people are there in Britain in, at the at the start of the war that the government thinks right? Oh shit, we've got to do something about them. Well, so just to say, it's not only German passport holders, but also Aust- and- Austrians yeah, yeah. and yes, Italians and uh, Czechs and all, all, all manner of different people. Um, in terms of refugees to Britain from Nazi oppression, um, there were around 73,500 uh, individuals who had come over. Of course, uh, the British public vastly overestimated the number of refugees that had come in that time. Uh, a few polls that were done in the 1930s um, asked members of the public, how many refugees do you think Britain has let in uh, fleeing from Nazi oppression? And people put the number at anywhere between two and four million. Uh, in <laughs> wow. fact, it, it was only so, yeah, slightly more than 70,000. But of course, there were more individuals than that who were who were theoretically under suspicion uh, because yeah. there were people who had lived in Britain for for many years who had perhaps come as children and had just never um, adopted uh, British nationality. So, yeah. Um, yeah, there were there were there was a, a, a large number of people, hundreds of thousands in, in the country who were th- theoretically under suspicion. Um, but really, at the 
outbreak of war, that number is is fairly fairly small. So MI5 conducts an investigation in in the months and years leading up to the war to try and identify people that they think are living in Britain who who might be Nazi pro Nazi sympathisers, and it's worth saying also um, uh, pro communists as well yeah. because at, at that time that was also the fear. And then as soon as war breaks out. Um, Police desks around the country had received um, an envelope filled with names of people living in their local communities who were to be arrested uh, the moment war broke out. This was a sort of sealed envelope marked only to be open in the event of war type thing. And uh, as a result of of those those names in in, um, at the outbreak of war, there's around between five and six hundred individuals uh, are arrested, and and the sort of legal term for what happens to them is is internment. It's not imprisonment, but really there's not much functional difference. Um, many of them are taken to Kensington Olympia and and held there, and you have really a mixture of yes, you know, pro-Nazi individuals, pro-communists, but also you know b- people who who are just unlucky and have perhaps arrived in Britain just weeks earlier and. There's not been enough time to figure out who their where their loyalties lie. So what what what's the vetting process that that, that MI five are using? Yeah, I was just going to ask you about this because there is a system, isn't there? And there's a sort of categorization of people. So I think ABC, isn't it, or something like that? Or one, two, yeah. Three. So so the, this the, the what you're referring to are the tribunals that occur in in November 1939. So this is really a sort of effort to try to distinguish uh, who are genuine refugees and. and and who perhaps might be people who have been sent to Britain uh, for more nefarious reasons, uh, perhaps posing as refugees. And all around the country, there are tribunals set up where if you are a, um, a an enemy alien is the is the term that's used at the time. Uh, we try not to use that term anymore for, for lots of different reasons, but we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll use it now because it's what was used at the time. So if you're an enemy alien, uh, that is a person of uh, enemy nationality living in Britain at the time, then you have to turn up to one of these tribunals where you sit before a senior member of the judiciary who asks you questions about you know who you are, who you were, when you, when you didn't live in Britain, why you came here, what you were escaping from. Um, and you are awarded as you say James one of three um, categories either A B or C if you're if you're a category A you're in the sort of most high risk category almost dead so you're off to Olympia at a try exactly Um, if you're a a C then you're a genuine refugee from Nazi oppression Uh, and then uh, the B's are the ones for whom there are question marks but but regardless of but but Simon sorry just to interrupt but but the B I mean say you're someone who's let's just say for argument's sake you've you've come over to england in the 1920s Mm. um but you visited germany again you have absolutely no interest in the nazi regime you're absolutely completely absolutely kosher um you've done uh but you've been over to see your family i don't know in the summer of 1939 knowing that the storm clouds are going this might be your last chance to see your family but your family includes kind of you know a nazi someone who's in the ss or something like that Mm -hmm. would that put you in category b um yes it it might well do and certainly if you had a parent who fought for germany in the first world war that's that's in some cases was grounds to be category a as well that's pretty much anyone isn't it (laughs) i mean uh, uh, 
if you had connections, was there a way around this? Because I remember reading Louis Hagen, who's a, who was a glider pilot who fought at Arnhem, um, uh, and our regular listeners will be glad that I've managed to squeeze that battle into this this podcast. But mm-hmm. he he had connections with a Liberal MP who who got up and said, "This this fellow's all right." Um, uh, he's a good sort. He's a good sort. There's no need to intern him because because his father his his father was politically connected and got the family out. Um, and Hagen was able to call on political connections to avoid being interned. Yes, I mean, that's absolutely true. You could take with you someone who could vouch for you to these tribunals. Um, and so if you were a well-connected person, then yes, uh, you could take your local MP with you or, or someone who, who could basically say, you know, this is a good sort and he should be a Category C and allowed to continue uh, living living his life. Um but of course, you know, this disproportionately um, targets then genuine refugees yeah. who don't have connections, those yeah. sort of connections, and, and well, who may, maybe don't even speak English that well. Well, and, and so, also, given how sort of porous the boundary is in British high society to Nazi sympathy anyway, that you could, you could, probably, you could probably get someone to speak on your behalf who, you know, who, who, they wouldn't be lying as such, but they'd be saying you're a decent chap because... Because they they're sympathetic to Nazism. I mean, there's yeah. there's there's a there's a problem there, isn't there? It, 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 a flaw in this system. But don't yeah. you think? So don't you think all those who were sort of pro-Nazi were sort of um, slightly kicking that under the table once it got to? Well, I suppose so. Yeah, war breaking out. I don't know. I mean, it is worth also saying that these um, the criteria that the judiciary applied were not uniformly applied around the country. No, so depending I, on where you happen yeah. to live, uh, you know, I think in Manchester... And who's the guy who was overseeing the tribunal, presumably? Yeah, exactly, exactly. He could be a vindictive sort, he might be yeah, slightly pre- more lenient. Yeah, precisely. So, so there are some areas where pretty much everyone is classed as a Category B. Other areas, I think in Manchester, uh, where the vast majority are Category C. So yes, it was really a sort of a geographical lottery as much as anything Simon category B means basically you can't go anywhere without telling the police you've got to basically stay at home yes can't own maps uh, cameras can't, own a can't, car can't use a that. bicycle yes yeah. lots of things like that can't own a bicycle <laughs> and, and cur- curfews as well yeah. wow wow that's Gosh. such amazing and when were these when were these sort of things starting to relax a bit well, uh, I mean, the the tribunals begin in November and they go right. through to the to the spring, and and they they're continuing all the while. Although, of course, the the majority of tribunals sit in the latter part of 1939. This all this all becomes much more serious uh, following the the German invasion of of Holland. This is when reports start coming back uh, from from Rotterdam. Yes, this this sort of term fifth columnist, which hadn't been around for very long at that time. Uh, the term fifth column, uh, which for people who don't know, refers to sort of traitors living within a nation who are poised to support an enemy invasion at any given moment. The invisible been, enemy within. Yeah, it, it, it had only been coined in the Spanish Civil War just a few years earlier, made popular by Ernest Hemingway's uh, play, uh, fifth, The Fifth Column. Um, and yes, but but anyway, so by May 1940, these reports start coming back of the, how the Nazi invasion of, of Holland has been supported by a network of fifth columnists. And these aren't sort of uh, the, the spies that you might imagine from, from Hollywood, but really sort of um, servants and cleaning staff and individuals like that, refugees who have been living in the country. This is how the story goes, by the way, I should say, um, who <laughs> then, you know, during the night of the invasion, emerge from these houses wearing... Um, German uniforms and and help the 
the paratroopers uh, to do what they're going to do and these the stories come across of course the the you can imagine the british tabloids uh, this makes for fantastic copy and uh, this is this is the parachuting yeah. nuns right yeah exactly yes exactly um but it's not only uh, tabloid journalists who, who take up this call in the British press. Um, the, the British envoy, um, Neville Bland, uh, is in Rotterdam Harbour of the night of the invasion. He comes back to Britain, writes up a report called Fifth Column Menace uh, two or three days later, which is, which is given to, to everyone in Whitehall, including um, the king, uh, receives a copy. Um, and it's filled with sort of, you know, tall tales, really, of, of how the terrible things that have happened um, in Holland are, are due to happen as well in Britain. Um, I mean, it's it's not the... I mean, this isn't the subject of the podcast, but it's, it's baloney, isn't it? This stuff, this does this didn't happen. It's it's the most mm. extraordinary war panic, isn't it? That that this 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 didn't happen, and a lot of it a lot of it is sort of because the the, the allies and 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 the Dutch aren't strictly speaking one of the allies, but, but you know what I mean because they're so caught with their trousers down by German tactical innovation that that everyone has to come up with reasons why, and the fifth column sort of fills the gap. Because after all, in a civil war, you can see it might happen in a, a thing like this might happen that there might sympathetic parties in a civil war like in Spain. That's understandable. But but it's it's baloney, isn't it? I mean, essentially, I know that's it, not it, what we're here to talk about. But in terms of Britain, do you mean? Or, or you in know, in, in Holland. And in Holland, uh, it's right, yeah. just nonsense, isn't it, Jim? I don't know. If it, I know because I think there were quite a few simpaticos in Holland and stuff. Yes, but um, not, but not, the, but not, the, not nuns and no, 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 no. Of course, parachuting not. No, nuns and all. The, well, which is where the panic ends up. And by the by the you know the high. Well, you summer, can see the sun high, doing that today. The high you? summer of nineteen forty. It is. They are the people, Russians people are, are looking at, Well, exa- I suppose so. Anyway, sorry, Simon. Sorry, I just I just always think it. Whenever you get to this, it needs it really needs saying that this is it's essentially nonsense, and it's very interesting yeah. how. Nonsense can grip people at a time of crisis, and really, you know, it's the you know it gets its boots on before the truth and all that. No all smoke that without fire. It, well, exactly. There you go. Yeah. All that stuff. Well, in, in fact, <laughs> a, cliches. <laughs> a, a few weeks before the the invasion in Holland, Sir, Sir John Anderson writes a letter to his father, in, in which he says it's very easy in wartime to start a, a spy panic. Um, so, so there's right. a there's an awareness that this Watch can. Watch me. Yeah. This, <laughs> this could, so when you look at some of these stories in the cold light today, you can see how ridiculous they are. The as, you know German paratroopers disguised as nuns. There's also a story of i think a fifth columnist handing out poison chocolates to um to, to yeah. people on the streets i mean it's just uh, you know frankly ludicrous so and and yes yeah, so it, it has the effect of this snowball effect of yeah. uh, tall tales but but bland's report is broadcast by the bbc um so you know he says there's you know there the moment with so, so much danger in the air and the, the fear of of um an invasion of britain um every german and, and austrian should be at least interned at once i think the the report states and, and that goes out on the on the bbc so you can imagine the effect that has on the british population who are already um antsy so it goes from this sort of formalised procedure in 1939 to a sort of intensified, panicked version of things in the summer of 1940. Because after all, everything changes in the summer of 1940, which is the thing we've... T- on this podcast, we've talked an awful lot about how, from May 1940, all bets are off. The way you were doing things before has been sort of completely bouleversed. It's been flipped. So so, so this process starts to inten- intensify, right? 
Yes, almost daily throughout May, it becomes more and more serious. So it's worth saying John Anderson had a hard time of it um, at that time. He was very much blamed for the, for mass inter- the mass internment policy, but it's worth saying that he was really against it and tried to uh, forestall it for as long as possible. But really, events overtake him in in May 1940, and there's so much clamouring in the in the press across the press, and you know, uh, for, for mass internment for every German and Austrian to be interned at once, that uh, it becomes untenable for the government to to not act and so so the sort of initial thing that happens is towards the end of may uh, that's when the roundups begin and um it sort of begins with the the coastal territories the coastal counties where the the a spy could potentially cause the the most harm to britain by supporting an invasion and so anyone who is regardless of their category uh, that they were given by the tribunals a few months earlier is arrested and um, and sent to one of the many internment camps that have been established across um, england and um, and and the especially the isle of man where um, 10 camps are set up over the course of the summer of 1940 and and almost day by day this territory whereby you can be arrested expands inland until there's really nowhere in britain where you're not um at risk uh, from if you're classed as an enemy alien for of being um arrested and interned without trial or um or accusation really specific accusation gosh it's extraordinary uh, but but simon just go back to so say say I've been ter- I've been given a category B. At what time? At what point would that either be upgraded or downgraded? Do you think realistically? So they don't. The your category doesn't necessarily change. In a few few instances, you are recategorised. But that's it, it's really just it. You, suddenly, the work that's been done by the tribunals no longer matters, um, and it's just safest to. In this phrase that, uh, that that sort of became famous and is often attributed to Churchill to collar the lot. So regardless of what category you are. Um, if you are above the age of 16 and below the age of 60 initially it was going to be 70 but they bring it down to 60 um, then you are going to be interned and that expands as well to include women and children as well and of course um, Italians in in early June Um, and so yes so you go from being from a you might have been a category B, but you're still going to be interned at that point. Yeah, and category Cs as well. Yes, and so Gosh. there are entire camps that are just filled with people who were category Cs. Yes, because I'm pretty yeah. sure that's what happened to Ken Adams' parents. Yeah, you know, yeah. even though they were Jews escaping from Nazi Germany. They were- well, yes, eighty percent of the people who are arrested here are, are Jewish people. So, the idea that they would be working for the Gestapo is preposterous. Obviously, preposterous. Um, but such is the level of fear um, that there's this idea that perhaps there might be some fifth columnists among them. And it's better to, and this is the phrase used repeatedly, it's better to round up everyone and then sort the sheep from the goats um, at, at at such a time as we're able to do so. I mean, that also shows that the that that whereas the German state might be evaluating its citizens racially, the British the British state isn't evaluating German citizens racially, doesn't it? Uh, in the sort of peculiarity of of the of the British approach to this problem is, you know, uh, I mean, obviously it's a it's a monstrous injustice, but it but it but it's this strange it's this strange sort of uh, it, you know like the same thing in negative of what the Germans have been doing. It's sort of mm. very peculiar. 
Yeah, I mean, it's worth saying that Churchill, um, obviously, so recently instated, who it, one of the arguments he uses um, to justify the mass internment measures is is to say, well, you know, such is the paranoia and panic among the British citizenship that it's really for the individuals. It's in their best interest. It will keep them safe by imprisoning them, which which is an exact uh, <laughs> reflection of the Nazi arguments in the nineteen thirties. Yeah. And what and, and Simon, yeah. what happened to if, if you're married to an Englishman but you're German, what happens? Or your your well, my Austrian your... grandmother, my my father's mother, who came from Vienna with my grandfather in '37, I think. What happened to her? Was uh, she? Well, he worked. At, he, well, he uh, no, he worked at the Foreign Office though. He was he was a spook. Right. So I think okay, so um, that's all right. So she she uh, uh, so they were okay. As far as as far as I understand it, I don't know. I've, I've, I'll have to ask my father. I, I, I don't know, but um, but if you yes, if you were sort it, of married to an English person, well, but you I've, were German. If you still had German citizenship, then that wouldn't have been grounds to protect you. But it's worth saying that you know, obviously, there are many more people who qualified for internment who weren't interned because um, because by the sort of middle of the summer, the brakes are put on the arrests. And yeah. so some people d- did get away without being arrested. And in fact, in you know, there are many Jewish refugees settle around um, Hampstead and those uh, areas of London. And there's a sort of uh, the uh, the information goes through the community that the police are likely to come first thing in the morning or at the end of the day and then once they log off for the day then you're then you're safe so lots of men go to the libraries during the day or you know knock about in the parks while they just wait for the sort of clock to run down i mean it's it's really worth you, know, you, you can imagine i suppose how haphazard all of these measures are and klaus hinrichsen who is a young art historian describes he was out at work he's working for a, for a british book publisher at the time the police turn up at the house where he's staying and knock on the door and ask for um, if one of their uh, one of one of their tenants is in at the day a German citizen and she says oh no you know he's he's already been you've already arrested him he's been interned and they they go oh oh okay well have you got anyone else here who's of German or Austrian and they go she goes well I have got Klaus he'll be back later and so they go okay we'll we'll come back later for him then. Um, well, well, Hagen, that's ridiculous, isn't it? Hagen worked in the theatre, and he would sleep in the theatre. Um, uh, he worked as a set designer, and or, or well, not a set designer. He build sets, and so what he'd do is sleep in the theatre. So he, but and and kept a car. So he had this very peculiar existence where he wasn't allowed a car, but was of no fixed abode. So he was able to just keep. He would keep moving and use his place of work as somewhere to as somewhere to live, and that's how he avoided it. Before he then ended up in the Pioneer Corps, which is like. You know, so there were there were obviously cracks in the in the matrix, and I suppose I suppose some people thought this was important. Other people thought we've got much much more urgent things to be dealing with, you know. And, and we're talking about a period where Britain's being bombed for the first time as well. So other people might be thinking there's more important questions of public order than than picking up German citizens. Well, I mean, you say that, or but the Italian interesting citizens. the interesting Sorry. thing is if you check. You know, if you read through Hansard from summer of 1940, it's yeah. really extraordinary how much this this um, dominates the debate um, on the first day of the Battle of Britain. The thing that's being discussed in the House of Commons is is the internment measures. You know, are they yeah. are, are we arresting the right people? Are they being treated correctly? You know, this is I, I suppose it does speak to the British sense of fairness, but also it says something about how much this 
this uh, episode has been suppressed in the popular imagination yeah. of the war yeah. is that this was such a massive issue at the time and yet it's something that I think you know you ask most people on the street and they wouldn't know anything about it I suppose politically it shows you're doing something as well it, 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 it equates to action doesn't it when Britain's very much you know on the back foot and doesn't know sort of doesn't know is in a situation it didn't expect to find itself in and it and it tough trans- measures for a tough situation exactly it translates as it translates as action and the government acting vigilant and looking busy and all that sort of stuff doesn't it yeah but and but also alongside that i suppose just a general ignorance of the yeah. political situation in germany you know there's this there's this anecdote that goes around the internees of uh, who arrive at liverpool and <clears> one <throat> of them hears the british officer who's who's sort of overseeing everyone arriving and overhears him say to to um, you know one of his fellow officers oh I had no idea that so many Jews were Nazis and it just really <laughs> it just really gives you a sense of the the sort of ignorance I suppose so um uh, what are these I mean the, the, I suppose the, the 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 next thing to ask is what what what's the business of being processed like and put in a camp what what are the what are the camps like because you know Hitler Hitler goes Hitler's able to say that the British have concentration camps that they're filling up with with um, uh, um, German people, and you know, call it they call it a free country. He says something like that, doesn't he? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, what are these camps? And, and he should know what concentration camps are like. He's the expert. What 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 are these camps like? What's the experience like for people? Well, I mean, it, it as you can imagine, it really varies depending on yeah. on where you are, who, what kind of officer is running the camp, how long they've had to um, to 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 get it ready for and fit for human habitation. Unfortunately, for many many internees, their very first experience of of internment is is. Mm negative so in london many are brought to kempton park race court and and they report being having their belongings taken by uh, by british soldiers who go through and you know pocketing they're not taking knives and things they're taking their watches and money yeah. and jewelry and things like this um, and then the you know particularly the most terrible of all these um, so-called um, transit camps is in bury a place called wharf mills this is a, a disused cotton mill factory um, that is really the the British Army only has about two weeks to prepare it for the internees, and then suddenly two thousand men arrive here. It's completely unfit for human habitation. You know the floor is still covered in oil, um, and the the beds that people are given are. Um, filled with lice there's no sanitation people just have to sort of they they set up um you know sort of toilet gully outside um and there's there's i think one or two taps for two thousand men to use um and of course you know you've got individuals here who have experienced german concentration camps already um and in fact one of the first people to go and um uh, one of the first external people to go and, and write a report on Wharf Mills is a chap called William Hughes, a Quaker, who had, who had in the 1930s visited Dachau uh, and to write similar reports for the Quakers in Germany. And he says Wharf Mills is worse than the than the camps that he'd he'd experienced in Germany. Um, and you can imagine if you are a German refugee who has managed to uh, make it out of one of these camps in the 30s um, had this fantastic news that they're going to be given um, 
a place, you know, a place of refuge and sanctuary yeah. in Britain, only to arrive, be arrested, and taken to a camp that's almost identical to the one that they experienced under the Nazis. You can imagine their view of Britain um, clouds pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, sure. I yeah. mean, presumably the conditions are awful, but the guards aren't quite in the same league as the SS. I'd, I'm assuming. No, but it's worth saying that the uh, the commandant of Worth Mills, uh, um, uh, Major Braybrook. He does oversee further looting of the of the internees. He uh, he comes up with this terrible uh, ploy to sort of instill order among the internees by saying, "Look, if you write me a letter explaining why you shouldn't be interned, I'll pass it on um, to um, to the war office at that time." And uh, and as soon as you know these these. Uh, Everyone obviously scrabbles for pieces of toilet paper or whatever to write down their story and pass them to him. And he doesn't do anything with them. He throws them away. And um, he's later court-martialed for his behaviour at Worth Mills and, and spends time in, in, in prison as a result. Wow. Um, well, that's reassuring, though, that it caught up with him. Yes, uh, eventually. Yes. Although, so- although, you know, that's there's one example. It's the, it's the people below him who he would have, who, uh, you know, he would have... Um, not authorised, but at least um, encouraged or, or given licence to by his behaviour, and the yeah. sort of all the all the little crimes in between yeah. that, that we'll never know about, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, you know, the looting is is terrible because they, you have situations with where you know, people with diabetes are being separated from their medication. Um, mm. You've got doctors, uh, you know, because of the uh, because of the the kind of people that the Nazis persecuted. You have you have very highly educated, accomplished individuals fleeing to Britain, and many of these wind up in this camp. So you've got doctors and surgeons being separated from their stethoscopes and other instruments, which would have been useful in in Worth Mills. You know for treating uh, treating fellow internees um and yeah so i mean it's a very grim situation that camp in particular it, happily that is i would say the the exception um, to the rule and many of the men move on from worth mills and they head well yes they go to they go to the Isle of Man, don't they? the they hutchinson the, camp so so yeah. where, how how long has the hutchinson camp been in the in the in the making and and how does that come about and and you know how do they suddenly supply the Isle of Man with all the provisions that are needed to keep that many people interned on on an island off the off the east coast off the west coast of Britain. Yeah, so the internment is is not an alien thing to to the Isle of Man. During the First World War, there were internment camps there, um, Nokelo Camp uh, on the. So island they're still had... there. They haven't been completely. Raised. No, they 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 have been taken down, and and it was a um, it was not a, a good episode internment during the First World War. This is a, a bit of a side story, but just briefly, you know, the the men the internees were put under tented accommodation. Uh, they were given you know very poor food provisions there's a riot um in the canteen that results in six men being being shot uh when the british soldiers fire indiscriminately through the doors into the sort of rioting crowd protesting at the the poor food rations and and actually after the end of the first world war the british government vows never again to repeat this this internment debacle of course you know now circumstances have have changed to the degree that they are going to repeat it but i would say you know it is it is more organized in in a sense here so we have um 
more camps they're not under tents they're in requisition typically in requisition boarding houses on the island hutchinson is just one of one of these camps two of which are, are, are given over to women and children uh, the other are, are for, for for men and you know you've got one camp that's specifically for italian um, internees uh, another camp that that um, is for category c internees so there are efforts made i suppose to to put uh, put commu- keep communities together to one degree or another um hutchinson is is on a you know fairly well to do um uh, boarding house square which would have been used typically by middle class holiday makers uh, in the summers uh, and the difference is that typically i suppose you would have five or six families in one of these houses now right. the men are sort of forced in to live with 30 to 40 men in but in you house. But, but for the most part you haven't got the conditions of wolf mills or anything like that it's not as bad no, and in fact, for for some some of the internees from poorer backgrounds, you know, they were sort of a, couldn't believe that they'd arrived at something that you know approaching a a holiday camp, I suppose, with lovely yeah. views of the Irish Sea. Um, so yes, it's a you know, of course, there are there are twelve hundred men in the camp, so so there's no universal experience, or no one you know, no one views it quite the same way. But yes, these are more pleasant surroundings, apart from the fact that they are rather crammed into the houses, and they're still essentially behind barbed wire and, and captives. And so what 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 I mean, uh, what freedoms do they have within the camps? Uh, you know, aside from obviously they're they're, they're interned, they're, they they can't go where they want. But but what how do, how does the, the the camp develop and the society within the camp? Because there's orchestras and all sorts well, exa- of things. Exactly, and, and 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 lots of clever people. And because we <laughs> we spoke to David Badil a while ago about this, um, uh, because he's written about it. Um, uh, and he says, oh, you know, it became little Vienna immediately. He said, you put put a load of Jews together, and suddenly Vienna appears out of nowhere. Is <laughs> is, is, is is that quite right, or uh, is that was that his? Com- comic and novelist's take on it. No, that's uh, that's exactly right. That is what happens uh, across many of the camps. Hutchinson, in in particular, which is the sort of main subject of, of my book, just happens to have this really dense number of uh, extremely competent and accomplished individuals. So you've got Oxbridge Dons there. You've got very very senior judges uh, from Germany and Austria who are in the camp, and and this as well a, a dense concentration of accomplished artists as well um, and that's why Hutchinson is often known as the artist's camp although there were of course many writers as well and journalists and um, yeah so it, it doesn't take long for, for Hutchinson to turn into uh, a rather sort of extraordinary place I suppose this uh, it's something uh, akin to a to a to a university or a cultural centre um, it opens on the 13th of July 1940 with three or four days later uh, one of the internees reports seeing some men lecturers emerging from the boarding house at their boarding houses sort of with the uh, with chairs and they take up positions around the around the lawn in the middle stand on top of the the, the um, their chairs and start lecturing essentially in their chosen subjects and crowds of internees gather around them and of course this isn't uh, this isn't like university you're free to wander off if it's boring and <laughs> go and listen to another lecturer and um 
this is all watched by an architect called Bruno Ahrens, uh, who had lectured at the Bauhaus. His sort of natural in- inclination to impose order on it all kicks in. And so he approaches Hutchinson's camp commandant, a chap called Captain Hubert Daniel, who's a retired um, advertising executive for Unilever. And he says, look, will you <laughs> will you allow me to organise a schedule of, of lectures and events um, to, you know, I think it will help keep order in the camp. Daniel says, yes, that's fine, but all of the lectures have to be given in English so that my guards can understand what's being said and that you're not rabble rousing. And um, and so and, and Captain Daniel also gives him a gives him a room, a sort of an office uh, f- from which to run this cultural department. And a runs uh, then begins to draw up a schedule of weekly lectures um, every day. Um, you could listen to anything from explications of Shakespeare's sonnets to, you know, synthetic uses of fibres to how, you know, cancer treatments, all depending on, you know, who the expert that is given right. given the talk. Um, and alongside that, there is also these musical performances. Um, Hutchinson wasn't necessarily, didn't have the, the most distinguished or, or recognised musicians, but he did have some. Marjan Rowitz was there, who was in a, a very popular um, piano duo called Rowitz and Landauer. And he gives, a, he gives numerous concerts in the, in the camp. Um, and uh, the, the journalists also self-organise and they decide to uh, set up a weekly uh, camp newspaper called The Camp, which is illustrated by the artists who are in the camp as well. So, um, yes, it's extremely sort of rich cultural life emerges almost immediately. And Simon, of the internees, I mean, how are they responding to their predicament? Is there any kind of... Uh, is it sort of bitter resentment across the board or is it or is it sort of weary resignation or is it kind of acceptance that you know situations changed and Britain's facing a crisis and blah 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 well, I suppose, or is it a mixture? Yes, it, I mean, it, it is a mixture depending on people's temperaments. Age is a big factor in how you view your internment. If you're in your early 20s or late teens, then you tend to see it as a big adventure and it's quite exciting. If you're an older person who has, a, or, or even just someone with a wife and family in London, and you know the blitz is going on, um, uh, then, you know, you, you have very different sentiments and you don't know how your family's going to be provided for. Of course, you know, it's f- much more frustrating and, and, and anxiety inducing um it's worth saying i mean the, the temptation i suppose is to romanticize the cultural activities that were happening yeah. in the camp but the truth is that they were they were happening really as a as a distraction from um you know the the endless days of being behind barbed wire accused by um by by the british government of being something that you're obviously not um and uh, you know there there was widespread depression. There were suicides in the camps on the Isle of Man. Um, there were people who were interned who should never have been interned, either because they were too old or because they had um, serious medical conditions that should have exempted them. But they end up in the camp anyway. It takes time to sort that out to to free people who should have been who should never have been interned. So yes, you can imagine alongside the the excitement of the the publications and the the talks and the the artistic exhibitions that are going on there's also this sort of darkness running alongside it we just need to take a quick break we'll be back in a second (music) 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. We're talking to Simon Parkin about the island of extraordinary captives, internment during the Second World War. Um, Simon, I mean, the thing we the, the thing we uh, haven't talked about is that obviously in amongst the internees there are Category A Nazi people. What's the what's the filtering process? Because obviously they're not in Hutchison, are they? They or if or if they are, they're having a they're having a bad time of it because they're surrounded by anti-Nazi people. What happens to the to your actual Nazi sympathisers, where are they put up? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and do they carry on defiant sort of celebrating Hitler's birthday and all that sort of stuff, <laughs> which is what I'd expect them to do? Um, well, yes. Yeah, so the, the, if, you were a, um, if you were a definite case, category A, Nazi, pro-Nazi, which included, I should say, members of the British Union of Fascists, of course, um, and, and, and other other British individuals, including officers as well, then you were sent to a, a detainment camp, which is slightly different to an internment camp. Um, there was one at Brixton Prison, the Oratory School in yes, London. Yes, the Mosleys were sent there, weren't they? Yes. Uh, and then on the Isle of Man, a little bit later, one of the camps is turned into a detainment camp um, that's Peveril camp in, in Peel um, and so yes that that's those were the sort of hot spots where the the sort of real dead certs were sent more complex were the I suppose you might describe them as fair weather Nazis people that would just support you know whoever was in power for a quiet life um, or those who were concealing their sympathies for, for yeah. other reasons um, there weren't many in in Hutchinson, uh, but there were some, and actually, sort of one of the storyline, one of the threads in the book is about, uh, uh, you know, a rather um, 
uh, what's the word, ebullient individual uh, called Ludwig Vorschauer, who really is very successful at uh, making Captain Daniel, the captain commandant, his friend and his supporter. Um, Vorschauer claims to be an engineer, a brilliant engineer from, from Germany, who is the co-creator of a device called the Teffy phone, which is sort of a, a version of the dictaphone, I suppose. Um, and uh, he sort of arrives in Hutchinson and says, look, there's just been a huge mistake. All of my friends in, in Whitehall will let me out soon. You know, I'm very well connected individual. Uh, which, which in fact he he was, uh, but he's not let out, and the reason being that he's subject of one of the longest investigations by MI5 into any internee, and they spend an awful lot of time and energy trying to expose uh, whether or not Vorschauer is is who he says he is, or whether he's he's come to Britain for for other reasons sent by the Gestapo. Um, mm. So yes, I would say though these are very much the exception to the rule, and the vast majority of individuals, particularly in Hutchinson, are exactly how they seem and who they say they are and when do they start getting released and sort of um said okay right you, you know you're clearly okay you, yes yeah, so and what back to normal life and go and join the raf or whatever uh, yeah and what and what causes the change because because there's obviously a, you know there has to be a change in attitude at the top doesn't there to, yes. to allow that to happen yeah so the key event in, in changing policy is the the sinking of the uh, Arundora Star? Um, this is uh, the British government wants as quickly as possible to to ship as many internees out of Britain as they can to basically pass on the problem to trading partners and colonies. And um, they send they start to send ships to Canada. Canada agrees to take Category A internees um, uh, and and some POWs. And so the first ships start going over to Canada but because it's all done in such haste the government has to make up the numbers with category B and category C internees as well so you've got a situation where there are you know large numbers of people going across in these ships uh, the I can't remember if it's the second or third ship to go is the Arundora Star uh, which is you know has POWs, it has um, Nazi th- sympathisers and it has in- Italian internees, Italian fascists, mixed in with those numbers made up for by Category C uh, refugees, all on this ship. It's torpedoed in the middle of the Atlantic by a U-boat. The ship goes down and um, more than 650 individuals lose their lose their lives of the, of the prisoners, this is. Um, and it initially the reports in the British press are that oh you know the, you know this is a tragedy but it was mainly Nazis on the on the ship so how bad can it really be I suppose uh, and there are also reports of poor behaviour of you know people shoving shoving each other out the way of lifeboats and basically things that it turns out are not true when the when the navy does a, a proper investigation into it all uh, and there is a there is a full investigation into the Arundel Star that's um, a, a white paper and then a further further you know addendums to it that reveal the names and the backgrounds of some of the people who lost their lives on that ship and how they should never have been on it and this is a a terrible injustice um and and when that starts coming out combined with the story of hmt dunera which you may have known may know about which is another ship that that took internees to australia where where the internees on the ship were treated terribly and resulted in court martials of british naval officers um these these two stories come out and i think there's this there's this realization um that uh, that mistakes have, have been made as john anderson puts it in the house of commons 
Um, and this really, but but so. I mean the the sinking of the Andorra Star. That's I mean that's quite early on. Is that's that sort of that's that that sort of um, when is that? It's sort of July, August, something like that, nineteen forty. Yeah, early July. Yes, yeah, so, but it takes time for the for the the true story of what happened to come out. Um, so by sort of. September is it? Uh, yeah. So the first, it's the, mood the, changing? the first people leave the the Isle of Man in, in early August, in fact. But these are really just pe- individuals who should never have been uh, um, interned in the first place. So people with right. you know major heart conditions or cancer or you know who should who should just never have been interned. The f- the first sort of concrete change comes when the government issues its white paper. Um, uh, in, in the late summer, uh, the first of, of three revisions that it, that it publishes, and this really gives a number of categories whereby people can can apply for for, for, for release from internment. You know, for perhaps they have skills that will be particularly of use to the British war effort. Um, or, or you know, there are there are, I think twelve or thirteen different different categories under which um, internees can apply for. For, for release but this all takes a lot of time there's a huge amount of paperwork um, involved and and inevitably those people who are best connected you know people who are academics at Oxford are the first ones to be released because it's it's easiest for them to to get together the supporters that they need in the documentation and sort of I suppose you might say the, the common man finds it much harder you know those who haven't haven't achieved distinction in their chosen field it's far harder for them to get out and many of them languish you know, internment you know long into 1941 and even into 1942 gosh that that that's very late isn't it um uh um now um at the start of the at the start of the podcast i i, I mentioned that the, the the last third of your book is is amazing is is a roll call a hutchinson camp roll call where you've you've got the names dates births professions releases and 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 uh, uh, a notes category um of everyone it's it's ev- it's everyone in the in the in Natchezen camp it it's to, and to look at it i mean we we uh, last week uh, week before last james and i went to the Royal Naval historical branch and looked at the there's a daily war diary there that they that they ran during the second world war and to see the thing the document that speaks directly from the event um was was absolutely thrilling and this is this this has this this is i mean this has had the same effect on me that because we're talking about internees and categories of people and here they are here's ernest alvorden born on the 27th of may 1886 who's a die who's a die setter you know these people it's it's it suddenly it's people rather than sort of Nameless statistics, is, statistics or nameless, faceless people with German surnames, which is after all, which is after all what they were to the government. Um, uh, it, uh, this is the most amazing thing to see in your book. And um, I mean, uh, what rea- I mean, the, I mean, my reaction to this is, well, if I knew a, if I knew a, you know, if I knew a half a doctor, Hef, a doctor Flug's grandson, I'd say, is this is your is your grandpa in this book? Yeah, yeah. It just feels. It, I mean, have you had reaction like that? People, people looking up their surnames and or thinking, "Hang on a minute, this was my member of my family in this camp." 
Um, yes, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Uh, th- thank you for saying that. It was it's a- incredibly moving <laughs> to see the names. I mean, it really, it, je- I, I would- it really is, Simon. It's an extraordinary thing. Thank you. I mean, I would say it's not complete. So the the right. the official documents on who was in what camp, the 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 ones for the men were destroyed um, in the Isle of Man archives at some point. So we have to rely on the the Home Office uh, records, which were released via a Freedom of Information request a few years ago. Um, and this, the, you can sort of pay to to access them. And this records. Each and every internee has a card, whether they were exempted from internment or when they were eventually um, interned. And it doesn't say which camp they were in, but in some cases, um, a you know whoever filled out this information has written on the card Hutchinson or Onken or uh, Peveril or wherever it is. So you know initially I wasn't planning to to create this roll call because it was a it was a lot of work. But uh, you know as I was going through trying to verify individuals who were in the camp and if I'm honest, really looking for sort of. Um, you know people that fit the title of the book people who were extraordinary because it sort of gives weight to the idea of you know this was a preposterous policy um but but as i did that it just seemed it just it just seems right to wherever i found someone who was in hutchinson to note down their details and you know over time that that list accumulates and then well yeah i mean as a as a sort of uh uh here's four four names um Engler, Fievel Engler, who's an insurance clerk, who was born in um, 1892. Epstein, Bruno Epstein, 80, from 1894, is a bookkeeper. Erich Erdos, who was born in 1914, he's an ice skating instructor. That's amazing. <laughs> um, and then um, Max Eschelbecher, who's a, who's a rabbi and who runs lectures on Jewish culture, according to his notes. I mean, you know... Top threat, top for, Nazi threat there. I mean, top, I mean, watch out for their ice skating instructor. I mean, honestly, MI5's, <laughs> MI5's red flags all waving at once. It's absolutely, you know... Um, and, you know, Reinhold Faulkner, formerly Volkner, who's the proprietor of Odom Hill Children's Farm and Home School in Devon. The, 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 who they've scooped up, I mean, and yes, I, it's not all just from London and Manchester. Well, well and, and it's Birmingham. also, but it's also not all lecturers and uh, and journalists and artists. It is and shoe, waiters at the Savoy. shoemakers, and you know, um, it's just it's absolutely incredible this list and and the way it, the way I mean the way it illuminates the 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 the, the picture casts light into the picture of the place. Um, uh, it, it it is absolutely brilliant. Uh, Klaus Ernst and Hinrichsen, who's a historian of art, who's the co-founder of Hutchinson University, you know, along alongside, um, uh, oh well, there's a Fu- Fuji Hirokichi. I think he's from somewhere else, possibly. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> I wonder where. <laughs> who's unknown? But I just think it's it, 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 that 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 you've put this. I mean, you know, it's it. I mean, these are the bones, I suppose, that you're putting the flesh to with the rest of the book, in a way. But but it's the most extraordinary document to look at, to see the names and see who they, you know, and the dates of birth, I think, are really important because you do have this mixture of mixture of people in their 50s and 60s. And then, you know, someone born in 1914, you know, who's, who's not not even 30 yet and must be either either regarding it as an adventure or thinking it's a monumental waste of time when they could be fighting the Nazis. Yes. Yeah. 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 And in fact, you know, many of these in- individuals, it's worth saying, do go straight from internment camp into the Pioneer Corps and then from there into other fighting 
divisions and um yeah. and you know and are involved in uh, in in normandy and, and other other key events um, yes because the army has that processing where they put them in the pioneer corps because they don't want to give them weapons basically and and because they the army hasn't got its head round um uh what what an asset especially german jews are at this point mm-hmm. and then gradually it sort of shakes down and they get into yeah. yes they get into the arm into the fighting arm to the sharp end uh, eventually yes and I, re- I remember interviewing a guy who ended up being um you know he was an interpreter for the british yes um and he was the guy who was given the task of of interpreting hitler's last will and testament yes which you can which is still in the imperial war museum now yeah well it, at, at least amazing. two of the internees who are in hutchinson are at the nuremberg trials one working as an as an interpreter for for ribbentrop and and the other working amazing. as a as an artist who's who's drawing what's going on um as, as a sort of court artist so yeah god incredible yeah oh, well well simon thank you so much for talking to us i mean i do find that lit i do find i genuinely find the the the, the roll call at the end in, an incredibly moving document i mean uh because like i say it's 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 the names and all their names or as many as you could get your hands on yeah um rather than there were a thousand people you know it's it's to it's to personify i think is really is really fantastic um, yeah, no, absolutely fantastic. And Simon, also, I'd love to get you back on to talk about the um, about the Wrens at Western Approaches as well. Oh, at some yes. point. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 we'll we'll make arrangements. Um, thank you once again, Simon. If people, um, uh, if if they want to, um, uh, I hope slake their thirst. Um, the Island of Extraordinary Captives, um, is is the book we've been talking about. Um, a true story of an artist, a spy, and a wartime scandal. Um, and <laughs> thank you for joining us, Simon. Thanks for having yeah, me. Yeah, thank you. It's been fascinating. Thank you.